Oh, this is going to be a good one. You're listening to Pete the Planner. This week on the Pete the Planner Show, we answer your money questions. Why? I haven't figured out either. I've been doing it for 10 years. I have no idea why we're still doing this. But here we are. We answer your financial questions this week on the show. We're going to talk daycare. Why? Well, because sometimes I think it's uh, people like paint a weird picture of daycare and the expenses and how it affects your family and your life and your ability to fund your financial priorities. So we're going to talk to, uh, oh, frankly, one of my coworkers that deals with that every day. So we're going to talk to her in just a second. We're going to talk to uh, Blair Ducanet. Oh, man, that name is fun to say. She's uh, from Louisiana. She just wrote an opinion piece in the New York Times about why you should fire your mail broker. That's right. Because three academic studies have pointed out that women are better investors than men, yet women are less than 20% of the financial advisors in the industry. Her piece in the New York Times was provocative to say the least. So she will join us here, actually next segment. I'm looking forward to talking to Blair Ducanet. It's fun to say. I can't spell it. Anyway, daycare. Daycare is one of those expenses that oftentimes it begins with, should I continue to work or should I just stay home? Because I'm only making this much more than daycare and, and, and different members of a family have that discussion, whether a mom or dad or someone's going to stay home. And of course, I've seen it on both sides where the dad decides to stay home or a mom decides to stay home. But let's say staying home is not an option. It's a matter of we need money, we have goals, we have expenses, daycare is just our reality. We were talking about this at lunch today uh, with my coworkers, and uh, by the way, joining me now, Vice President of Marketing Operations, Jasmine uh, Snyder. Hello. Hello, Peter. Snadams? What it was? Adams? Snyder? No, it was too much paperwork. It's just Snyder. Uh, She got married last year. Uh, Look, it sounds insensitive. Like, I don't know what her last name is. She decided to keep it, then she didn't keep it. You kept Snyder, though, right? Yeah, it's just Snyder. Okay, good. I feel less uncomfortable now. But we do jokingly call our family Snadams. Right. So, uh, Jazz, um, daycare, man. It's a wild ride. It is. And, and a lot of people have dealt with it. And Sarah and I have dealt with it. Uh, my wife, Mrs. Planner, I, I should never call her Sarah. She hates that. Uh, Mrs. Planner, um, we dealt with it, you know, year, years ago. I think we are paying $1,300 a month, you know, for daycare. Insane. It's a thing. Uh, oftentimes, I tell people... Think of it like a, a treadmill. You're really not going to go anywhere. Um, just stay upright during that time frame. And it usually lasts between zero to six years old. And you are at one at this uh, point. How do you How do you and your husband view daycare costs? Are you, do you just grin and bear it? Do you see an end in sight? Like, How do you get your head around the financial ramifications of that? Well, for us, it was complicated by other expenses so it wasn't just that daycare all of a sudden is this new expense now i was also paying more for insurance for uh my husband went back to grad school so we had all these other things going on so we had to go the cheapest route possible like you can find really nice daycares they're going to cost you 350 dollars a week yeah (laughs) and uh that just wasn't an option for us so we we've compromised by i drive 20 minutes out of my way to take my daughter to daycare because it was cheaper. We um, have a family member who helps out and watches her a couple days a week. 
We have another babysitter who will watch her a couple days, like a week if we need her to. So we've had to go the alternative methods route to make it work for us. Yeah, you and I tend to have very honest conversations where we're not really trying to get the other person to feel any other way than the truth. Do how do you view this as part of your overall financial plan, or do you is this literally we're surviving? Why we have this expense? You know, I feel like last year we were surviving, and then this year I'm like, okay, this is a reality of our life, but we can't just. If, if we just chose to survive daycare and then considering if we choose to have other kids as well, sure. like that's a decade of our lives. Like that's uh, no one wants to survive that long. Like you want to m- make it better than that. So for us, it's about redefining what we want out of life. If that makes sense. Like I love to travel. And before I got married, I traveled all the time. Sure. It has significantly decreased since I've had kids just because it's so expensive. So for me, it's like, how how can I make, how can we have the life we want while still paying for daycare, still affording it? And I, I don't have a perfect answer, but that's something that like, you know, I, it's like a trade-off. Sure. Like, I used to love eating out too. Well, if I eat out, I can't travel. So is it, is it, is it, okay, we eat at home now and then we can afford to go on a trip a year or something? Like, what are the trade-offs there? And I think having that, realistic look at your budget where you really do spend a lot of money. (laughs) You know, I'm glad you bring this up because I find one of the periods of time that I see on the most frequent basis of when people begin to lose it. Like when people begin, it's the beginning of the end. It's when there's a new priority like daycare, because that's the best way to think about it because the child's the priority, but you have to spend the money with the daycare to make the child priority. Yet the old priorities, eating out, travel, shopping, whatever, they don't subside. And so what you get is you get these competing priorities with this, with, with similar spends. And that's when people go into debt. And, and I see it all the time. And, and I wonder, um, when you, when you think about this, do you look at it as one of those things where, look, we just need to get our kids to kindergarten because not that it's daycare, but at least it's it's they are cared for during the day. Or are you looking at the before and after school care things? Thus yeah, far? and that's the thing. I have a I also have a seven year old stepdaughter, so I see from that perspective too. Now her co- care obviously is split between her parents, and so it's not just one hundred percent on us. But uh, you know there is there's the before and after care because you know school does not start at 7:30 a.m. when I need to drop her off necessarily it doesn't end at five when I need to pick her up so you know there's before and after care but then also now we're getting into lessons and you know about this oh man, yeah you're spending, we I mean I spend more on piano lessons than I do on just about anything else you know when when people okay so it's funny before I had kids when people would say kids are expensive. You actually don't know what that means until you have kids, right? Yeah. And then you realize it is things like daycare and day camps during the summer and lessons. And you know what? They are expensive. Yeah, they are. Like we're about to have a big powwow with my stepdaughter's mom about summer. And it's like, and obviously, like I said, we're not even doing all those costs ourselves. Like that's a shared expense for us. But then you think, okay, well, if we do have additional kids in the future, what that looks like. Because that's not, you know, even if we do go to public school, like there's still, there's before and after school care. There's lessons throughout the year. There's then summer day camps. Like 
you're you're not necessarily decreasing your costs as much as you think you will when you get out of daycare. Like I think everyone thinks of this get out of daycare time as like this peak, like finally we're out of this season. It's like it's not going to be perfectly gone. It, <laughs> you replace it with other things. Uh, part of the reason I wanted to do this segment today, not only because we talked about it at lunch, but I saw a news story three days ago that said if stay-at-home parents were paid, their salary would be $162,000 a year. I saw that. Now, I, I've seen these stories over the years. They seem increasingly popular over the last 10 or so. And I'm going to catch flack for this. I just think that's a really stupid thing. I saw the one, I think it might have been the same one, but it also said, like, if working parents got paid for the time they parent at night, which is, like, a weird thing, too. So it's sort of like one of those things that just, oh, let's get this but look, so, study to go viral. So, so my wife, we're able, she stays home with, with the kids, and, like, it's like, at some point in time, why do we have to associate a salary with the idea of taking care of the family? And, and I'm not, by the way, I'm not suggesting this is a wife's role. I, I think you hopefully know, you know me well enough to know that's not how I feel. I, but why does a parent have to have a, a, a fictitious salary assigned to them to, to have this all make sense, you know? I don't know. It's more like, I think it's just, it might be about like emotional value. Interesting. All right. Well, if you have thoughts about this, email me, ask Pete at PeteThePlanner.com. We'll always take your daycare questions. We'll get it to our experts on on what to look for and uh, how to save money there. Jazz, thanks for joining us on the show. No worries. Go back to work. That seemed rude. All right, coming up after the break, more of the Pete the Planner Show. I'm Pete the Planner. Back on the Pete the Planner show. Uh, this week in the financial world, a Twitter friend of mine set the financial world ablaze with an amazing New York Times opinion piece uh, about gender and investing. She joins us on the program now. Her name is Blue. Uh, Blue. Her name is Blue. Her name is Blair Ducanet. She is a financial advisor with Ritholtz uh, Wealth Management. She's down in Louisiana. Welcome to the show, Blair. Thank you for having me, and you couldn't know this because we're not sitting in the same room, but I'm wearing blue today. So can I call you blue, or is that a little awkward? I've never been called blue, but maybe we can go with it. We'll go with Blair. Okay, so first of all, let's get official business out of the way. We are Twitter friends. We've been following each other for a while. I'm trying to teach my six-year-old son how to make friends at school, and I told him he just asked. So can we be real friends, Blair? Absolutely. I am so glad we finally got past this question. Okay, good. All right, so you wrote a set your hair on fire piece in the New York Times, um, which is probably a, a weird thing to hear that you wrote a piece in the New York Times about gender and investing, and it was probably the most provocative headline I've ever seen on a financial story. Why don't you share that with us? Yeah, so I had blogged about the lack of women in the financial advisory space um, of, back in the fall. And one of the editors of the Sunday Review in the New York Times read it and approached me. Um, he followed me on Twitter, speaking of Twitter, and said, I saw this blog. I would like for you to sort of extrapolate this into an essay format in the Sunday Review. And once I sort of regained consciousness from the shock of being asked to write an opinion piece in the New York Times, I got to work on it. Um, and it's really just pointing out that 
there's only about 20% of financial advisors are women, and that number isn't moving. Uh, and the New York Times chooses the headline. I knew about the headline. I didn't push back on it because I thought, well, this is going to grab attention, and that's what, that's what I want. I want attention to this topic. And so I rolled with it, and uh, it's definitely uh, causing a lot of stir this week in the financial services community. The title in question is, Consider Firing Your Male Broker. Now, as a newspaper columnist, I do now know, I didn't know at first, that uh, you don't get to choose your headlines. You just don't, and you think you should, but you don't. But New York Times obviously knows what they're doing, and they wrote this one. Help us understand this, because here's my only uh, perspective on this. Every investor uh, survey or, or study I've ever read about gender says that women are better investors than men. And, and that's a big point within your opinion piece. Yes, there's been a lot of studies. Uh, I pointed to two. One study uh, from Brad Barber and Terrence Odine looked at individual investors in their brokerage accounts, uh, and the women brokerage accounts tended to outperform the men, not because they were choosing better investments, but because they were trading less often and incurring less trading costs. And that paper surmises that men trade more frequently because they are overconfident in their abilities. And so if there's anything to draw from that, it's that the characteristic of women, stereotypically, I, I understand not every woman and not every man is going to fit the stereotype, but on average, women exhibit less overconfidence, and wouldn't that be a good thing to add to an investment team or to um, an advisory team helping people make decisions about their retirement plan? You know, one piece of feedback I often hear, and especially when I was in the financial business, is when it comes to an advisor working with a married couple, a husband and wife specifically, and how traditionally a, a male advisor may talk down or uh, try to talk over the head of uh, the wife. And that causes a tremendous amount of consternation, so much so that recently one of my wife's friends came to my wife and said, our advisor talks down to me. What do we do? And Blair, that's got to be something that happens all the time. And, you know, a lot of times these male advisors have no idea that they're doing it, and if they knew how their female clients felt about it, they would be horrified. This is what we call unconscious bias. One of the other points in the, in the uh, op-ed that I, I wrote was that symphony orchestras started doing blind auditions, so the, the uh, musician would be behind a screen, and they were shocked to find out that it massively um, increased the number of women that they hired to the shock of the conductors who didn't know they had this bias. So I think these horror stories that you hear can potentially come from well-meaning advisors who have no idea that the way that they're addressing women or the way that they're pre-assuming that women don't know certain financial terminology or wouldn't want to discuss certain topics, they're trying to be nice and polite, maybe even in some cases are completely horrifying their, their female clients. And I think it's important to get that topic out there as well for those advisors um, who maybe mean well, but they're really messing it up. I have to admit, 75% of our financial concierge team, where we answer financial questions for a living, they're CFPs and whatnot. 75% are women uh, on our particular team. But, but Blair, that's incredibly unusual. And I, I can honestly, outside of my organization, I can count the female financial advisors I know, including you, on one hand. Mm -hmm. That's a, that's yeah. a problem. 
I've been in the financial advice industry for 15 years and have been going to conferences that entire time. And the ratio of women in the rooms at those big conferences has not changed. And the data shows it. Uh, Cerulli looks at all financial advisors. They say 20% are women. CFA Institute, 18% of CFA charter holders are women. CFP, 23% of women. And these numbers are the same as they were 20 years ago. And that's the problem that I was trying to highlight is there's not enough women and we're not seeing a trend upward. All right. So these, uh, this portion of the program is uh, the questions I've been wanting to ask you all week about the column. <laughs> Number one, have you read the comments? I glanced at the comments at the very beginning and quickly decided that I would not go down that road. All right, so I would agree with that move, although I did have my favorite one that I'm going to read to you, and I'm sorry. Uh, okay. Uh, it's from Roberta. If a man wrote a column titled, Consider Firing Your Female Broker, he would be crucified. You know, when people say something, she's completely missing the point. You know what I mean? Like Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's we're not in a situation where women have dominated this high-paying field, may I add, we're not in that situation where women have dominated and the men can't seem to get in. Yeah. And so that, that's just not a logical comment, in uh, my opinion. All right. So have you had an uptick in interest in you being someone's financial advisor this week? So I hear anecdotally um, through my firm that uh, inquiries that we get, we have inbound inquiries. So um, I did hear that there was an uptick. I was on CNBC yesterday. Um, I think it's too soon to, to tell um, if that's completely attributable to, be, attributable to me, but I have heard from so many people in the industry, former colleagues, former classmates, there's a lot of interest in this topic. And for that, I am extremely glad. And it really wasn't about trying to up my profile necessarily, but up the profile of this topic in general. Yeah, I, I, this does feel like one of those things. It's You're not saying anything bad about men. You're saying... Let, let's highlight the positive uh, qualities that come with a female advisor. Although I will say, and I'm glad you pointed it out in your piece, you look at all the Ponzi schemes and white-collar financial crimes, not a lot of women committing those crimes. You know, I almost said something like that in the op-ed, but when I started to research it, there are actually several women who have run Ponzi schemes historically. I had never heard of them before, so I wouldn't go down that route. I did point out some of the anecdotes that anybody who's worked in the financial advice industry, uh, it would ring true to them, you know, the, the broker who is in a state of semi-retirement, but you don't know about it, or the broker who's going to hand you off to his son-in-law. Um, you know, I did take some punches there, and obviously, um, you know, there's some truth in that, And but that doesn't mean that every man in this industry is a bad person. In fact, most of them are good advisors who are doing the best for their clients. Um, and in my opinion, the, um, the title is, is tongue-in-cheek. The title of the op-ed is tongue-in-cheek. It's meant to um, get your attention so that you'll read the rest of the very important information in it. Well, kudos to you. I hope you more, write more pieces like this. I, I think um, it's spot on. I totally support it, and I'm glad that we got to uh, introduce you to my listeners. So thanks so much for joining us, and let's not make this a one-time thing. I'd love to have you back on a different topic. Agreed. I would love to join you again. Thanks for having me. Blair Ducanet, investment advisor, Ritholtz Wealth Management. Back on the Pete the Planner show. You enjoy that, Blair uh, Ducanet? 
She does a good job. Uh, check her out. Uh, RitholtzWealthManagement.com, I believe. I don't know. Just Google Ritholtz. R-I-T-H-O-L-T-Z. Why you should fire your male broker. Provocative. Provocative. I like her. We'll have her back. Now let's focus on the market. It turns out the market's doing pretty decent this year. To help us understand that, I welcome to the program uh, frequent guest of the show, Director of Personal Financial Strategies at Your Money Line, <laughs> my buddy and yours, Damian Dunn, CFP. Hello, Damian. Hey, Pete. You know Blair? Have you? Do you know? Are you Twitter friends with Blair too? Uh, I yeah, I see her stuff. Even if I didn't follow her, enough people that I do follow retweet her all the time. It's almost like I follow her. So yeah, I don't well, even know. We but, just, but I see her all the time. Did you read her article about firing your mail broker this week? I did. Yeah, I, we just had her on the show, and uh, people are talking. People are talking. Uh, hey, buddy. So the market got just stroked from what Thanksgiving on in twenty at the end of twenty eighteen. Yeah, it was uh, pretty brutal in the markets, I think, all the way up until Christmas Eve, if I remember correctly. And then after the uh, the holidays, things started looking up, actually. You know, when Mrs. Planner and I first got married, this was 2000. She put $2,500 in a mutual fund, and every month since then has put $50 in. And that fund had climbed up to, in the fall, $20,000, right? And after, at the end of the year, we got the end of the year statement, it had fallen 2000 bucks, basically 10%, uh, back down to 18000 So I think a lot of people still are shell-shocked from what was the end of the year. People have got that negative mojo going with the, the federal shutdown. Um, but I think people, Damien, would be surprised to learn the market's actually done pretty well this year. Yeah, year-to-date, um, so January 1st to uh, today, it's the S&P 500 actually returned 6.5% so far this year, which is pretty fantastic. It's not unheard of to kind of have a, a real quick bounce back after you, you have such a precipitous fall off uh, as quickly as we did at the end of last year. But it just goes to show that you can't time this stuff. You have to stay invested in the markets because if you would have pulled your money out right, uh, right before this thing turned, then you would have missed a big upswing. You know... That is the takeaway, isn't it? Like, if you freaked out at the end of the year, no, this one's different. Because isn't that the phrase people use every time the market moves into correction territory or anywhere near? They're like, this one feels different because of blah, blah, and blah. But here we are. And, and, and by the way, one could argue this is a dead cat bounce, couldn't they? Sure. Yeah. Uh, we, as much as we didn't predict this return to happen quite this this quickly and and i'm not saying that it's here to stay um we didn't know it was going to get that ugly that fast either and so i again i i think uh don't time the market just count your time in the market Ooh, that sounds like it should be on a hallmark card um it might be there, there are still some pretty significant uh positions that are getting uh beaten up here this year you look at uh apple um, I don't know. Why do I always feel compelled to say Apple computers when I talk about Apple stock? That's I, I, sort of dumb. Anyway, Apple has gotten beaten up. It's, it's improved a little bit. But Amazon's had a pretty solid year. Although, you know, you look at the, the FANG stocks, Netflix is now taking a beating because it feels like they're going to get low on cash and they just raise prices. Yeah, I, you know, who's 
everybody cut the cable and ran to Netflix for that, that solution. And, and so now you kind of wonder, well, if they raise prices, what's the next alternative? And we've had some other things that get floated out there from some of the uh, the bigger companies trying to compete in that space but still provide TV channels, kind of a, a closer to a la carte uh, position. But you know, Disney is going to get into the space. And I think NBC just announced this past week uh, that they're going to start doing a streaming service as well. Um, it's really an interesting space, and I'm not sure where it's going to end up, but it's something to certainly pay attention to. Yeah, I, I like to ask people this from time to time. What is your entertainment package at your house? We are a, uh, a uh, direct TV family, but I feel like most of the time we're on Netflix or Amazon Prime streaming. What, what are you guys? Uh, we are Netflix uh, primarily, and then we, uh, through uh, our, our cell phone provider, we, we get access to a couple other stations that we get through uh, Apple TV. Yeah, I, I, you know what? It's one of those things that, you know, we talk about trying to get people to save money all the time. I feel like I'm wasting money on my television. Anyway, um, can people expect, this is the dumbest question I've asked on this show in 10 years, can people expect for the market to continue at this pace of up 65 for the year, 6.5% uh, for the year, or do we just not know anything uh, given that we're not even one-twelfth through the year yet? Pete, this is the dumbest question you've asked on this show <laughs> in the last... I, um, no, I, I think it's silly to presume that we're going to continue uh, gaining 6.5% every three weeks uh, for the rest of the year now. I'd be kind of thrilled if we did, although I'd hate to think of the ramifications that are that are happening outside of the stock market for that to happen. Um, but no, uh, this is uh, this is a, a quick turn on hopefully what's going to be a, a positive turn and stay there. But if it doesn't, it doesn't, and that uh, that could lead into a whole other conversation that we could have on making sure that you're allocated properly for uh, all sorts of different reasons. The other big news in investing this week, uh, Icon. I mean, truly Mount Rushmore of investing. Uh, John Bogle slash uh, the, some people call him Jack, right? He's John or Jack Bogle. Yep. Yep. Uh, died at the age of 90? 89? 89? 89, I think. Yep. Founded uh, and chief executive officer of the Vanguard Group, which is one of the largest uh, investment companies in, in the world, he really sort of brought retail investing to the masses, right? Yeah, uh, he did a, a fantastic job, and kind of the, the linchpin of, of what he founded everything on was making it inexpensive to do. Yeah, and, uh, it really opened up the, the the space for the everyday investor. Yeah, his his approach was the following. Uh, here's are his eight basic rules for investors. And you know what? It's hard to argue with any of these. Number one, select low-cost funds. you going to disagree with that one, Dame? No, not at all. Number two, consider carefully the added costs of advice. <laughs> oh, jeez. That's true. I mean, right? Yeah. Yeah, there's, there is a value to advice, but you have to make sure what you're paying for is uh, worthy of the dollars you're spending on it. I'll be darned. We could do an entire show on these eight things as I'm going through. Number three, do not overrate past fund performance. You know, exactly. you know, we talk about that one a lot, dude, but it's like tr track record matters to some degree. I mean, it, it's not indicative of it, but I have always felt like it, it colors it, but it doesn't predict what's going to happen. Sure. I mean, there's all sorts of things that 
that are going to taint that. I mean, you pick, you have the 15 year average if somebody wants to look long term. Well, what 15 years are you capturing? It could greatly skew the results of that 15 year. And, and plus, you don't know if the manager's turned over, if it's been the same people the whole time. There, there's all sorts of stuff that goes into making sure that the performance numbers you're looking at actually have a shred of credibility going forward. Which brings us to point four, which is use past performance to determine consistency and risk, which is exactly what you just said. Number five, beware of stars, as in star mutual fund managers. Man, that is the truth. I know, especially in the 80s and 90s, was it the Peter Lynch's of the world? People were doing a good job managing particular mutual funds, and they became superstars. And so anything they put their name on uh, were selling, and that doesn't necessarily make sense. Number six, beware of asset size. Number seven, don't own too many funds. You know, that's uh, of all these things we've just talked about, that's the one I probably see the most where people own like 30 different funds. Uh, and number yep. eight, Damien, as we wrap up here, buy your fund portfolio and hold it. Uh, John Jack Bogle, if he did nothing else, he was a proponent of buy and hold. I assume that is, I don't know if we've ever talked about this. Maybe we should have. That's what you subscribe to, the, too, right? Absolutely. I think that's the way to go. Yeah, I'm a buy and hold investor, and I hope if you're listening right now, you are too. Coming up after the break, Damon, can you stick with us? Biggest waste of money of the week? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Uh, all that is next on the Pete the Planner Show. I'm, uh, well, I'm Pete the Planner. This week's biggest waste of money of the week here on the, what's the name of the show? Pete's Planner Show is, we'll get to it in a second, Damian Dunn, my dearest friend. Hey, buddy. Uh, joins us back on the show. He is the Director of Personal Financial Strategies at Your Money Line, powered by Pete the Planner. That's weird. Hey, buddy. Hey, Pete. <laughs> Long week at Your Money Line. Long week. But the, the travel picks up soon. I'll be in the Wisconsin Dells speaking to a group of people. I'll be down in Orlando. I'm hitting all edges of the United States here. But I will say this, and for those that care, which let's move on, I booked a bass fishing trip on my trip to Orlando, so I'm very excited about that. I'm going to hook some fish in the face. Do you, uh, do you have to take your own polls with you for that, Pete? Do you think any PETA members listen to this show? Uh, maybe. If any PETA members listen to the show, uh, shoot me an email, askpete at petetheplanner.com, askpete at petetheplanner.com, subject line, Pete of the Planner, and let me know if you listen. That's all. Uh, Damien, do you have a, a, a this week's biggest waste of money? Can I start, and then you can go? Sure, that's fine. This week's biggest waste of money of the week is the Lost Explorer Volcanic Face Scrub. Boasting a list of adventurous ingredients, the Lost Explorer Volcanic Face Scrub is like a refreshing expedition for your skin. The journey starts with a natural mix of black willow bark and perlite particles. Producing a gentle exfoliant, this combo buffs away dead skin cells and impurities while absorbing unwanted oils. From there, botanicals like blood orange and aloe vera Soothe and restore the skin while essential oils from Madagascar keep it hydrated until your next big outing. So, Damien, what do you think this Lost Explorer Volcanic Face Scrub costs? Uh, uh, let's say uh, 50 bucks. 
Here's the thing, though. Before we get there, I have two major points I need to make. Number one, did it even mention volcanic particles, or is that what the perlite is? I, I, I'm not a geologist. It's fifty-five dollars for a small tube of this. It sounded yeah, probably like probably like one or two ounces. I'm guessing three and a half ounces. But the second they said Madagascar, the price goes up ten bucks. Doesn't aloe vera sound like an exotic dancer on a hippie commune? Like stage yeah. three, aloe vera. It's probably not where we want to go with this. No. <laughs> it's been a long week. Can I mention the long week? You did. At some point, can you just use like a SOS pad instead of this exfoliant stuff? I mean, is it kind of the same thing? That's a good question. You know, here's the thing. So Mrs. Planner likes to use this uh, this exfoliant scrub or whatever for face. And at one point, they have, like, little plastic beads or, like, little silicone beads. But then you couldn't use the beads anymore because the beads were killing the, the sea mammals. Do you know about this? I don't. So you'd use, like, a face scrub as an exfoliant. So it had, like, a gritty bead to it. But it was, like, a, mm -hmm. a synthetic bead. But then they wouldn't break down. And somehow, like everything, it makes itself into the How does everything get in the ocean? Have we talked about that? No, I was just wondering how stuff in your neck of the woods made it out to the ocean. I don't know, but she said she had to stop using it. But it, on I what point is that BS? Said, I don't know. I, I bet if she would have said it was killing fish in retention ponds, you would have been all over it. Though. Oh, I would have been upset. But, but think about that for a second. We live in Indiana. We're landlocked, uh, other than the retention pond that's 50 feet from my house that has some moderately sized bass. How can, if, if, if we fly down the drain of our shower, if some synthetic beads, super small, microscopic, you can feel them, can't see them, they go down the drain, how are they killing a, a dolphin? Do you have answers? I mean, this is why I have you on the show. You know I, everything. I, I could explain it to you, but <laughs> in your state right now, you probably wouldn't understand. I am not hearing anything right now. I'm a mess. Damien, yeah. what's your biggest waste of money of the week? <laughs> Uh, I have a timeless accessory interrupted only by a gleaming silver tone buckle. <laughs> this Burberry belt is the perfect accent to crisp tailored trousers and smart denim alike. Simply detailed with an engraved logo, let it complete all manner of ensembles with easy elegance. Okay, can I guess on this? Or are you done reading the copy? Yep. It felt like you were done, so that's why I started talking. <laughs> Pete, how much would you bid for this luxurious leather belt? It's, it's a Burberry leather belt. Yeah. $199. $199. No, it's going to be closer to $422 what? For, this, for this piece of leather to hold your pants up. Does it have a clock radio? Is, is the buckle no, have a Bitcoin even, in it? No, there's no Wi-Fi, no Bluetooth, no anything. What? I, you can buy a decent a suit. Buckle. You can buy a decent suit for four hundred twenty bucks. Yeah, well, that's yeah, not bit... one of your suits, but yeah. Oh, stop it. Okay, it. <laughs> I'm uncomfortable. Uh, my <laughs> my next biggest waste of money of the week: the Novus electric motorbike, eighty five pounds, sixty miles per hour, and a sixty mile range. The Novus could be boiled down to just its specs. But it's much more than that. Its ultra-modern hollow body frame is made primarily from carbon fiber, which helps to keep the weight down. There's no dash to speak of. Instead, using the rider's phone as a display, and the current design lacks 
several elements, such as turn indicators, mirrors, and brake lights. Oh, boy. Necessary for road use. Still, there's no denying the lure of its compact form, and as such, there's reason to believe the production version will be worth the investment. So, Damien, I'm going to paint the picture here. This is an electric motorbike. I mean, I'm going to be honest. Did they not just describe a moped? What am I missing here? Pretty much. It, yeah, I, yeah. It's weird looking. It, it's weird looking. It's got a weird... Anyway, how much do you think this thing costs? Uh, two grand. Oh, man. $39,500. <laughs> I love stupid stuff so much, man. It's the best. You know what? I'm going to hit people with the fourth one for the week. That's where we are. If, if you're just joining us on the show, I'm tired. And look, you're like, oh, but you owe us something. I don't. I don't. I'm tired. Uh, basalt candles. <laughs> From start to finish, basalt's attention to detail is second to none. Is, or do you get the feeling that every time we read something that starts with that sort of lame copy? Attention to details. Oh, yeah. It, it, it's, it's like a Mad Libs for expensive stuff. <laughs> for starters, their scents are anything but basic. Also, pretty. <laughs> that's pretty cliche. The sweet tobacco mixes together notes of tobacco, vanilla, peppercorn, and whiskey to exude the aroma of an evening pipe and a glass of spiced whiskey while dark tides smells like salty ocean waves crashing on a shipwreck by blending sea salt musk lavender and cedar what is wrong with people each one of these soy wax candles is hand poured into many industrial paint cans and sealed to keep the fragrance at its freshest they're 30 dollars for paint cans filled with smells of spiced whiskey and an evening pipe. But oh. it's not even a gallon can, is it? It's, it's, no. It's something much, much smaller. So do you think people buy stuff like... We, we, for 10 years, I've been doing this segment. And it's crazy. Like, what is that? Do people buy it because it smells good or is it because of... It's in a paint can or basalt isn't... Like, what's happening here in our lives? Don't spend thirty bucks on a candle. Does the shutdown end this week? No. <laughs> That's I, I all you got. So. My column. I, I wrote a really spicy. It's been a weird week. I've written a really spicy column. You will see it here soon in USA Today or some associated paper, and it's brutal. And I'm going to get beat up for it, but I don't care. I kind of just got sick of people not caring about other people's financial problems. We live fragile financial lives. Uh, your financial life, no matter how stable it may seem right now, is one unfortunate incident, to say the least, away from being as fragile as those federal workers who are not getting paid. I'll leave it at that. Damien, director of things, thank you for being on the show. Happy to be here. Uh, thanks to Blair Ducanet. Jasmine Snyder made an appearance today, too. Damien, that should tell you, is a great show. Wow. That's all we have time for this week. Sending good vibes because good vibes are all that's in the budget. I'm Pete the Planner. This is my show. Mm -hmm.